Right, we're going live now. Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to another Faster Masters Rowing Radio. I'm Rebecca Caro, and as usual, I'm joined by Molly Royal. Hello, Rebecca. Hello, Faster Masters. It's another week. And just as a reminder to everybody, we have decided, thanks to your feedback, that we're going to be a weekly podcast from now on in. So although we're calling this lockdown episode 14, I think we're going to revert back to our normal title, which is Faster Masters Rowing Radio. Now, we're kicking off with a brief word from our sponsors. Please help our sponsors out. You know and we know that they help us to bring this show to you. Blake Gourlay's book is still available with a 30% discount through to the end of June. So it's now the 24th. So you've got a week to go. It's called The Movement of Rowing. And it's about improving your foot and ankle mobility and how limitations in that area can affect your performance. He's given a 30% discount to all listeners of this podcast, and you can get it by going to rowing.chat forward slash sponsor, and the promo code is rowingchat, and I'll put that in the show notes. Now, secondly, we want to help rowing retailers recover, and so we're going to be building on Rowing Chat a gigantic page which lists all the rowing retailers. We'd like to feature as many as possible. And we know there are tons of great businesses out there which we don't already know ourselves. And so we need your help. Can you send us a link to a product or a website where they've got stuff that you know and love? So we need you just to flip those over to us. Do it through the rowing.chat um, website. That's got a contact form there. Um, and then what we'll do is we'll let you know when we have the um, whole site built. And lastly, on Faster Masters Rowing, we've got a new little product, which is Ask Us a Question. We've actually got three different prices for it, but the link is question-email. And what you will be able to do is to submit a question for us to answer here on the podcast for you. And basically, if it's a really quick answer that you think, choose the lowest price. If you want a really detailed answer that covers a ton of detail and will take longer to explain, pick the higher price. And if you've got something in between, pick the in-between one. Now, this week, we were taking a browse through the Masters Rowing International Group, and there was a fantastic discussion started by a gentleman who showed a photograph of a spectacular blister that he had gotten right here on his palm next to his wedding ring. Marlene, do you skull wearing a wedding ring? No, I do not. I don't wear my wedding. I don't wear a wedding ring, actually, though I am married. <laughs> you don't have this problem. So I have both a wedding ring and an engagement ring, and I take my engagement ring off, when I row, because the two together somehow pinch my skin between the two rings. And in fact, I'm going to show you something here. My wedding ring has a real flat spot across mm. the top. This is my engagement ring, sorry, where I have pressed it against an oar handle and it's just deformed the metal. But the discussion had a fantastic 
solution, which is a silicone wedding ring. And they're cheap as chips. You buy them on Amazon. I'll put the link in the show notes. And a lot <laughs> of people recommended this. Interesting. It, it Certainly, there were some very humorous comments about, you know, I had to decide whether I took my ring off and didn't wear it or I risked losing it. Well, that's and what I would think about. Yeah. What would your partner say if you lost it? And so some people wear it on a, on a necklace, a, a chain around their neck. And some prefer to have a substitute, which I thought was really interesting. But clearly, mm -hmm. clearly it's not something that just rowers suffer. The need to have, I suppose, weightlifting, maybe tennis. Right, yeah, probably anything where you're holding, you know, an implement, you have something in your hand, all, you know, that's a constant pressure all the time, you know, because I would think if you had a very nice wedding ring, I mean, just the risk of losing it is high, right? Especially if you're taking it on and off and putting putting it in different places. Um, I, I just never like to have anything on my hands when I rode. And also um, I practice as a, as a sports massage therapist for years. So we just never wore anything on our hands. So, um, so I just don't have the habit of wearing anything on my hands, but you know, I a silicone ring that's soft. That doesn't, you know, that's a great idea. Yeah. Uh, we have um, comments from a listener. Cece says bike riding, another sport where mm -hmm. maybe to protect your hands and protect your ring. So good, good point. Yeah. If yeah anyone, constant pressure. Yeah, exactly. Particularly if you're sort of like pushing, standing up on the pedals. If anyone has comments or questions that arise during the live show, please put them in the comments where you're watching, whether you're watching on YouTube or you're watching on Facebook, and uh, we will endeavor to read them out and come around to answering your questions. We got an inquiry um, by uh, email after last week's show from Carol Daly. Hey, Carol. Can you please answer this question for me in your next podcast? I'd like to hear you discuss a little more in depth about inboard and its relationship to rigging. Marlene, I know you're going to have the one that's going to kick off on this. So <laughs> and rigging. Rigging, rigging is the topic of the week. Well, if you're the purpose of your rigging is one to set you up comfortably in the boat from a biomechanical point of view. And so you also, it's also in terms of determining your load, which is kind of how much, in, in very, very simple terms, you know, how heavy does the boat feel to move? How light does the boat feel to move? What, um, if you're going to race, you, you have a target stroke rate that you want to race at. And if your boat is rigged too heavy, you're not going to be able to reach that um, target racing stroke rate, for example. Um, and also, if the load is too heavy in your rigging, you also risk overuse injuries from that because it's just simply too much pressure, perhaps on your back or your ribs or your, your um, tendons near your elbows. But the inboard is one measurement on your oar. So on your oar, you have you have your, the the overall length, which is from the handle to the tip of the blade. And then the inboard measurement is from the 
part of the collar that goes against your orlock to the tip of the handle. So it is the part that is inside inside your boat on the inside between your orlocks. And in rigging your the oar when you're sculling, you know, your oar rotates around the pin of the orlock. Okay? So the handle is always moving in a semicircle it, it motion. And your blade essentially has a little bit of slip in the water, but say for descriptive purposes, you know, your blade is essentially fixed in the water. It does have some movement in towards the boat and out towards the boat, but um, the oar does not move through the water. We move the boat past the oar. So the inboard and the outboard set the leverage of how you move the boat past the oar around the pin. Um, so you've got a pivot point at the pin. And if you make the, say your oar is um, X centimeters long. If you make the inboard longer, that you move the collar, you make the inboard longer, that is going to lighten the load. If you make the inboard shorter, that's going to increase the load. Um, so if you, that's, given that the fact that you don't change the length of your oar. So, and this is a very, very simple, simplified explanation here. So the other thing that the inboard affects is how great an arc you make around the pin. Now, the goal, one of the goals of rigging is to quote, uh, have a longer stroke. But what length means does not mean how far you stretch forward or how far you lean back. Length means how long can you hold the blade in the water with an appropriate pressure. So to increase your length, especially I would say in master's rigging, what we look to do is we decrease the inboard and we decrease the overall length of the oar so that you can make a tighter circle around the pin. So that means when you come up to put your blade in the water, if you have a shorter inboard, you're going to be able to separate your hands more and get your hands outside of the gunnels of the boat. If your inboard is very long, you're, you're going to feel like you're rowing in a box. You're not going to feel like you're, you're able to open your handles up wide enough to get far, far enough outside the edge of the boat. So, so just a quick pause there. When we're talking about rigging to have a longer stroke, that is a longer stroke in the water, i.e. the amount of time that the oar spends from its placement at the catch through to its extraction at the finish. So length, confusing thing, the English language. We've got the physical measurement, which is the length of the oar, total length and inboard. But length in the water isn't usually measured by a distance measurement. It is a time measurement. Yes, I, I mean, I would actually say time in the water, but when they say stroke length or effective stroke length, that's measured by the amount of pressure on the blade and um, effective stroke length is the angle when you put the blade in at the catch and the angle where it comes out at the release, that amount, that those angles determine um, the effective length, but it's based on the pressure pressure on the blade, how much pressure you're holding. So with your inboard, 
if you decrease your inboard, for example, you make your inboard a little bit shorter, maybe it's not 87, you make your inboard 85 centimeters. That, that's going to do two things. One, it's going to give you the, if you're sitting at your release position and you shorten your inboard, that's going to give you the ability to move your foot stretchers more to the stern, which is desirable. That is going to help you um, get your hip up level with the pin of the oarlock when you're putting your blade in the water. So you want your hip to be at least level with the pin of the oarlock, if not to the stern when the blade goes in the water. So basically we want to rig, we want to rig to the stern um, and decreasing the inboard will give you a little bit more room to move your foot stretchers to the stern. And it also will open the separation of your handles, which is going to increase that arc around the pin to create a steeper catch angle as the blade goes in the water. Wow. Thank you. And Carol, I hope that that gives you an initial answer. Just as a point, when you're listening to Marlene giving lovely but deeply technical answers, sometimes it's useful to pause the recording and to write down what you have heard her say. And you may also like to have a little diagram of an oar. Just, just draw a straight line with a square on the end, which is the blade, and then a little vertical line to show where the button is, the oar, um, which goes it's against the oar lock, um, or the collar, sorry. This is, again, US-UK language. Um, and then draw a diagram of a triangle, which is your rigger against the side of the boat. And then you may be able to draw sort of dotted lines. Sometimes I do it with a pen or a pencil. Mm -hmm. So I, like have a, I imagine that my finger is the pivot point and I can go like this and I can figure out what happens with that tip of my, the shiny tip of my pen. And if I move the pivot point out like this, what happens to the shiny tip of the pen as it moves through the arc? And what happens if I move it closer the other way? And then you can actually visually see for yourself and draw it on a piece of paper. Right. And, <laughs> it's, and it's important. I mean, it's important to realize that the oar moves around the pin of the oar lock. And that's something that kind of sometimes people, they don't really think about. They don't really think about it, but your handles are moving in a circular motion. It's not straight like your tracks inside the boat. So your, your hands are separating, they come together at the crossover, they're separating again your handles at the release. It's just not such, it's not so, um, it's not such a big angle. But for masters rowers who may have some limited range of motion, you might have ankle mobility issues, you might have hip mobility issues, you may have lower back um, flexibility issues you can help get yourself in a better biomechanical position rigging up through the pin um, by adjusting the inboard and the overall length. If you decrease the inboard, that makes the load heavier if you have not changed the overall length of your oar. So to be comfortable, you may need to then shorten your oar a little bit, but that's, that's a better way to go to get a comfortable resistance or load we talk about, but get a comfortable resistance 
that you like and you don't get any funny aches and pains on the second or third day. If you change your rigging and you start getting aches and pains, that means it's too heavy and you need to back something off um, so that it's not, it shouldn't create pain when you make a rigging change. But um, you are better off to scale down the overall length of the oar in favor of a steeper catch angle because the blades that most people are using, which are hatchet shaped blades, are designed for steeper catch angles, you know, 65, 60 degrees maybe for a master, maybe 65 degrees. Um, so you want to do what you can to achieve, I mean, you may not get there completely depending on your range of motion, but you want to get the best catch angle that you can because the release angle is a fixed angle. It's going to be between 30 and 35 degrees. You don't, you're not going to increase that angle. It's the time when the blade stops propelling the boat. So um, that's more or less a fixed point. You can improve the angle of how the blade goes in the water. And that's what the oars that you're rowing with want you to do. Good points. Now, an, a variation around that which reflects the fact that we know a lot of people who listen to this podcast are new to rowing. And also, obviously, since lockdown, a lot of people are new to sculling. We're seeing a lot of discussion about people who are taking up single sculling for the first time in order to get on the water because they can't go out in crew boats. And each week through the lockdown podcast series, we've been trying to add in some extra tips for folks who are new to single sculling. So reflecting on the question around inboard and rigging, I want to add a couple of additional things. When you are new to single sculling or sculling full stop, you will generally find it reasonably challenging to get this long time in the water, the long arc of the stroke, because you're learning to handle the blades. When you don't feel a load on the end of your blade when you're working, it also makes it harder, obviously, to move the boat, but also for you to actually feel the effect of your physiological body movements on the boat speed. And so with regards to inboard and rigging, I have a suggestion. If you shorten the inboard, make it shorter, you can load yourself up a little bit more. And this can be a very effective way of helping you to define the physical movements that your body is going through, hands, body, slide, and so on. Because you feel the load more, it can help you notice when you are getting the sequence correct and when you're not. On the erg, I will often, with novices, increase the fan resistance from four or five up sometimes to ten so that because there's a heavier load, people can't move so quickly and they notice more efficiencies in how they move. And you can do the same in the boat. So if you tighten your inboard, and you can do this with the um, C-shaped clams that a lot of all manufacturers supply, uh, which you just slide down the handle. So it effectively, um, or, or, sorry, either down the handle or up from the usually yeah. um, but it, you can you can then set a tighter inboard and then use the clam to set it back to its previ previous position the clam is a centimeter wide 
So it, it's a one. It's quite a substantial change in inboard. So give yourself more load and see whether you can feel the stroke more. And although it reduces the arc of your stroke by sorry, increases the arc of your stroke. If you're missing water at the catch, it's more likely that you will get your blade in the water at a decent reach forward. And it is also obviously because of the heavier load better that you will then feel the power of what you're producing. I will also say that there are regularly people who start learning to row who are physically not very tall. And for them, going into a club that has a standard inboard, so for example, 86 or 87 centimetres, and given the boats that you have available, sometimes they cannot get adjusted so that they have enough width between their hands at the finish. Now, in our club, the range of boats we have, and we frequently row mixed quads. So you'll have men and women in the same boat. So we will tend to go out in the boats that have bigger hulls that are designed for 80 or 90 kilo people. And women will then be rowing in men's boats. The foot stretchers are not designed to come so close to uh, the front stop <laughs> position. And as a consequence, we often find that people, ladies, can't get enough separation at the finish. So what we've done is we've designated a couple of pairs of oars as having deliberately shorter inboards specifically for this purpose. Um, and that's really, really useful. Um, so we can say to them, go and find these oars. And we just have tape that's down the shaft and that explains. In fact, one of them says Jane. <laughs> Thank you, Jane, for <laughs> being the first. Um, and that actually makes it much easier in a group setting to facilitate people getting into what Marlene described as the correct physiological positions and then using adjustments on the equipment so that you can blend in and fit in with everybody else. Because there's nothing more frustrating than getting to the finish and finding you can't get your hands out of separation. And how can you teach someone to row properly if you can't first get them into the correct positions in the boat? Right. Ab absolutely. I mean, people are, are all different shapes and sizes. And another thing I think to build on what, what Rebecca said is in terms of your stroke length, when you first begin sculling, don't worry about this. Focus first on getting comfortable with the blade work. Focus on keeping good posture. Um, as you get more comfortable in the boat, you're going to be more confident getting more compression. You're going to be more confident rowing tall. As a result, you will, will start to spend more time in the water. Your stroke will start to lengthen. But it's not something that you should actively try to achieve right away. Focus on the skills and the blade work. And the, the increasing the length of the stroke will come with practice. But you still need to put the blade in correctly and take it out correctly. And if you do end up sculling quite a bit at your club and you're using club singles, if you think that you're going to be sculling a lot, one of the things I recommend to people is buy your own oars. You know, mm -hmm. you, you, you may not necessarily, you know, the rigging of a boat is not going to be dramatically different in terms of the span. And most club boats have the little spacers that you can, the little sea 
washers that you can clip out with your fingers to raise and lower the Orlocks without any tools. But if you can afford it, um, having your own oars in a club situation allows you to really customize how you're rowing in the boat. And you know, and you can use those oars. Most club boats, most club singles are going to be rigged fairly similar similarly, or you'll be using a similar boat each time. And that is one way to really, you know, really customize your personal rowing without having to buy your own boat. That's a great recommendation. And we will do an episode in the future talking about how to select oars for your own personal use. Quick reminder that if you'd like to ask a question, um, go to fastermastersrowing.com and go to our products page and you will see at the top of the page um, asking a question to get an answer. We can answer them by email. We can answer them in the podcast. And the most expensive option is we can answer them with a one-to-one -one Zoom call with you. So please feel free to pile in and have a look at that. Now, rolling back to people who are listening live, I would like to firstly welcome Saya Pikanen, who is listening to us from Finland. Excellent. Hi, I'm clearly pronouncing your name wrong, so I will apologize in advance, but that's really, really nice to have you with us. And we also have Cece watching from Whidbey, which we now know is in Washington State on the west coast of the US. Now, we also, going back to our earlier remarks about silicone wedding rings, if you remember, we were talking about people getting blisters. Charlie is watching on YouTube and he says, Flat wrists, a light grip and finger rolling feather technique will mitigate the severity of that callus. Charlie, you're absolutely right. And um, if you can do all of those things, you probably don't need to worry about wearing a wedding ring. <laughs> so, uh, so that's absolutely cool. Now, we wanted to spend some time talking about the role of drills and exercises as part of your rowing training, as part of your practice. Um, we know that a lot of you have training programs, either ones that you buy from us at Faster Masters Rowing or ones that are supplied by your club. It's always good to have a plan for every outing, even if you're an experienced coach. As Persephone Wynne said to us when she was doing the Faster Masters program for the first time, she says, it's really hard to coach yourself. And bear in mind, she is not only a coach, she is a coach educator as well. And actually, it's easier for your own personal training to have something written down. You go down to the rowing club and it tells you what you need to do that day. But often when we are writing these programs, we deliberately include drills and exercises alongside work pieces which are designed obviously to build your physiology so simultaneously in a single outing you're working on your skill in the boat or crew combination skill and also some physiology training so marlene let's talk first about what's the principle of when and how you should incorporate drills into your practices well what do you want to use a drill for? I mean, you can use drills for multiple purposes. You can use drills to perfect one element of the stroke cycle. 
You can use your drill to develop better coordination of a specific movement by isolating that movement that you just focus on one little element. Um, drills help you teach new athletes new motions. Um, you can also use drills to give your athletes or your crew challenge, you know, just, I mean, do crazy things for fun to really improve their balance or to improve their speed. So you can, you can use drills in, in a lot of different ways. Um, they can help you correct your sequences, blend something new, like maybe you're just learning how to um, carry your blades off the water and you're learning a, a drill that's going to help you carry your exaggerate carrying your blades higher off the water, just so it's something new that you learn where to apply that pressure over the handle in the stroke cycle. Um, it helps your crews blend and become symmetrical. So it's a huge tool with crews to get timing and rhythm together because those are essential to boat speed. In terms of in terms of when you you include drills in a practice, um, I like to include drills at the early part of a session. So that's one when the athlete is not fatigued, when their attention is peaked, and um, they're able to really um, really focus on something in detail before they get into the to the meat of the workout. That's one one approach. Um, you can also have designated technical sessions. Um, so you might have something that is a, a low intensity row, but every two or three minutes, you include a set of 10 strokes of a certain drill. And you may incorporate that into, into the whole practice. It breaks up steady state, but you st still get the same physiological purpose out of it. Um, you can use drills when you rest. So mm. if you've got a five minute rest period between a piece, you know, there might be some stationary drills that you can include, some drills you can do in place, some push pull drills, some backing drills. Um, there might be things that don't require a lot of energy in the sense of moving, but you can do them in place while you're resting. Or if you're waiting, you're rowing with a group and you, you, ha you, have, to, you have a meeting point and you get there first, use that time to do some, some drills that you can do in place and make that productive time while you're waiting for the rest of the group to meet up with you and, and your coach. That is such a good point um, about the joining up and doing stationary drills. I'm reminded of one that we had at the weekend where we were doing a backing down drill and it was, it was very effective. And then last night I was sitting at dinner going, oh, my shoulder. <laughs> so it's that bit where you come down off the yes. top of your bicep and it's right here. I was like, why am I sore? And I was like, I am not used to backing down. <laughs> I told you, you need to do more of it. You did. You did. I will listen to you, coach, obviously, in the future. And, you know, actually now since people are just getting on the water, this transition time, I would really encourage people to a do more backing, okay? Because think about your ribs, you want to protect your ribs, so you need some pushing away motion besides the drawing in motion. And a really fun drill, put your blades in the water square and practice pushing and pulling, just moving the blades back and forth, 
back and forth in the water. Maybe first you do arms only, then maybe you do just just backswing. Maybe you do arms and back. You can do you can do the whole sequence from the release up to a full stroke or from the top of the side to a full stroke, but just keep the blades in the water and just move like 10 strokes at each station, push and pull, push and pull. And that at the beginning of the season, that's very good for helping work some of these opposing muscles, especially around your rib cage to protect this from injury when you're just getting back into the boat. So backing and pushing, pushing is really valuable. That is very true. Now, Marlene mentioned earlier that she likes to teach a new drill early in a workout when the athlete's attention span is good and their energy levels are high. I will say that when I am coaching, I will do exactly that. And then I will ensure that we practice the drill at least three separate times during the workout. So the drill, uh, whatever it is, um, gets better the more frequently you practice it. And I like to do a first, you know, teaching them how to do it, get them to do it. Then we'll probably do a little bit of rowing and then we'll move into the drill again. And this time I'll ask the athletes to do it with an increased pressure. So part of the point of the drill is to teach usually a body movement sequence and an oar handling sequence. By adding load, working harder, you make it more challenging. You also stand a good chance of noticing the difference that the drill creates in your rowing. And that's a really good way to think about it. So when I'm teaching, I then also often get people to do the drill at the end of the outing when they're tired, because that's the point about how muscle memory works. You should be able to still execute the drill successfully at the end of the outing as well as at the beginning. Yes, that's definitely the goal. And repetition is important. And when you practice a drill one day, um, don't tell yourself, oh, I did that drill. I don't need to do that again. You, <laughs> you need to practice drills a lot. And as you get better, it's as you get better, you can appreciate a, a drill at a higher level, at greater force, at higher boat speed. And drills can be things like sitting up at the top of the slide, right? With your with your blades squared in the water or even with your blades flat on the water. And you just lift one hand off your handle and then you put your hand back. That's a drill. You know, this, this gives you some confidence in the boat that, you know, okay, I start to learn how to keep my weight level on the seat. I learn how to, you know, you just learn perception, but even something like uh, sitting at the release and you just take your hands above the handles and you, 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 feel how you balance on the seat or, you know, there's, you, you learn how to, um, one of my favorites is you undo one oar lock and you take that oar over to the other side of the boat. And then you undo that oar lock and you take that oar other to the other side of the boat and you switch your oars on the water in the single without falling in. That, that's the whole school of training. <laughs> I, I will do that in the summertime. Yes. Yes. We do that in the summertime, but, but there is a technique to it, but you know, such things are really fun. And, um, you know, they teach you lots and lots of boat skills, you know, doing, doing things like, you know, spinning, spinning your oars all the way around on the recovery. Like and you know, yeah. yeah, there's all kinds of fun things. Now, just going back to the purpose of drills, one thing that rowers probably don't know when they're first starting is that the elite rowers, the Olympians, 
are doing the same drills that you are being taught. And their ability and skill at executing them is fantastic. And the reason that they keep going, we call it going back to the basics, that they keep doing the these exact same drills is to confirm that they are moving skillfully, that as a crew that they're moving together skillfully, and that their coach can then see that they are successfully controlling the boat, controlling their bodies and controlling the oars. So don't think that there are drills that are things that you just do when you're a beginner. You don't. You are always in your rowing career coming back to some of the very, very first things that you were probably taught. Here's a little remark from Cece. She says, I'll usually do at least a few drills at the end of the workout, focusing on things I want to address or fine tune. That's definitely good practice. So I think we've come to the end of our Faster Masters Rowing Radio. Lockdown week 14. This is definitely the last lockdown episode, but we're going to be back. Same time next week. And remember, send us some questions if you have some that you particularly like us to address and tell your friends. We really appreciate new listeners. And it's great if you're listening live, but it's also really nice to know that a lot of people download the show and listen to it in audio podcast format. Till next time. Thank you, everyone.